Hey, Snacks, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, we are going to be discussing the season three finale, Eye of the Storm. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that no matter where you're listening to this podcast, you can always find the Sassnack Files on most major listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to Facebook and Instagram to follow the Sassnack Files for all of the latest and greatest news concerning this podcast, along with Outlander Season 6 and 7 and Diana Gabaldon's newest book, Go Tell the Beast That I'm Gone. Also on social media, currently we are working our way through our contest for the best episode of Season 5. And you are hearing it here first because the final four episodes of Season 5 are... Monsters and Heroes, The Fiery Cross, The Ballad of Roger Mack, and Never My Love. So we will be voting later this week on the final four. So make sure you head over to Facebook and Instagram to follow the Sassanac Files and cast your votes. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Season 3, Episode 13, Eye of the Storm. everyone and thanks for joining me here for another episode of the Sassnack Files. I am so excited to be talking to you today about the season three finale, Eye of the Storm. And it's been a little bit, it's probably been about a week since I have had a chance to record an episode, but guys, let me tell you what has changed, okay? So last week I was talking about how excited I was that the sun was shining, the birds were singing, we had leaves on the trees and the flowers were blooming and it just really put me in a good mood. Well, this week, it's snowing, guys. It's almost May. In Indiana, there are leaves on the trees and it is snowing. I don't think I can ever remember a time in my lifetime when it has snowed in April. Like, mid to late April. And it really just kind of put a damper on things. I'm really hoping that it didn't damage our fruit trees at all. Not to mention, like, how discouraging it is to look out your window and see it snowing. Like, we got substantial snow. Like, it was not a dusting. It was probably two to three inches of heavy, gross snow. And yes, it all melted off today. But, oh my goodness. I'm just not feeling it, guys. But it's all gone and it's going to be warmer. Like, this is how crazy it is. They talk about the filming in Scotland and how nuts it is. And I 100% believe them. I think that the weather in Scotland is probably pretty comparable to what we have here in Indiana. We can literally have all four seasons in one day. So I get that when they talk about that on a very personal level. (laughs) Just know that... You're not the only ones to deal with it in Scotland. We definitely have that kind of weather where I'm from, too. But, you know, it is what it is. And today we're here to talk about Outlander. So let's get to discussing. This episode was directed by Matt Roberts and written by Matt Roberts and Tony Graffia. I thought that it was a relatively good episode. It definitely had its rough patches. And I'm not sure that that is a direct result of the writing or the directing for this particular episode. I think it's more a result of the entire arc of the season. They pace themselves really well in the first five to six episodes, like all the way through A. Malcolm. And then it kind of just lost speed and then it ramped up really fast at the end. I think if they had spaced it out a little bit better and paced it a little bit better, that this episode may have had a different result. But honestly, as a viewer, it was just a little confusing for me because you're dealing with the arc of the back half of the season, which is saving young Ian from whatever has befallen him. And we accomplished that goal by the halfway point of this episode. It was like, oh, okay, is it almost done? Like the episode must almost be over. And that's kind of how it feels. And then you click on the like play button and you realize that there's half of the episode left. So the arc seemed a bit confusing to me. I mean, I get they had to include all the stuff with the storm to put us in the right place to pick up for season four. And to be honest, I really do like the end of this episode. It's nothing against that. I feel like genuinely it was a good place to end the season. 
There were a couple of things that I did not care for in this episode, but generally speaking, the majority of it was good content. The whole Claire and Galus thing that they have going on, I found it really odd that Claire trusts Galus, given everything that she knows about her. I mean, at this point, she's killed not one, but two husbands. I know I kept talking about the one husband, but she did also kill Arthur, and Claire was there for that, too, and knew that Galus did it. It wasn't a questionable thing. Like, she knew Galus killed her husband, and then turned around and saw in 1968 that she also killed her first husband. So she knows that she's murdered at least two people at this point, yet she still believes that Galus is a good person on some level, probably because she saved her life in Cranesmere, and I get that. But at the same time, like, you, girl, you got to have some reservations about this person. She's clearly off her rocker. (laughs) And I think that is even more so the case as we come down to the wire in these last couple episodes of season three. It's very clear that Galus is a little unhinged, if not a lot unhinged personally. She's so paranoid. She thinks that Claire is after the treasure. Legitimately, Ian's like, Perhaps you can't hear properly, but I said she, they wanted the treasure to pay a debt. And Galus is not hearing any of it, even when Claire tells her, we're here for Ian. We're not here for anything else. Galus is playing on the coincidence of it all. And to an extent, she's right. It is a humongous coincidence that these two keep running into each other. Out of the whole wide world of people, the only other time traveler that Galus has ever met is Claire, and that they keep running into each other. It is a massive coincidence. Don't get me wrong. I completely understand that part of it. But she's so paranoid. She thinks that Claire is almost working against her in a way, even though like Claire and Jamie supported the Jacobite cause there for the good portion of Charlie's campaign through Scotland. So it's just odd that Galus is very concerned with the fact that Claire is trying to stop her from putting a new king of Scotland on the throne. And this is her major concern that she's worked so hard to put Scotland back as an independent country, you know, that this is what she's been working towards. And she thinks Claire is trying to ruin that and take the treasure for herself. It's just this level of paranoia that it makes her very dangerous because not only is she paranoid, but she's willing to defend her beliefs and fight for what she wants, which ultimately means she's willing to kill whoever she has to kill to get the job done, which does not bode well for any of the Fraser clan. I think that Claire kind of smells a rat when Galus is like, do what you want with her. She's not here for a good reason, blah, blah, blah. And Claire's like, well, I haven't even been in this century for the past 20 years, you know, and shows her the pictures. Bad move like the worst possible move and I think that Claire was really I mean she didn't have any clue how could she have any clue that Galus had this prophecy that she'd been unpacking for the better part of a month or even longer because that's just since they had the prophecy read but that the bronze seer's prophecy would have anything to do with Brianna, that the the new king of Scotland will rise upon the death of a child that is 200 years old on the day of its birth. What? And it's like Jamie said when (laughs) Mr. Campbell says this to him, he's like, you're not making any sense. And it makes sense to Claire. She hears it and she's like, oh no, oh no, this is bad. Because she knows that now Galus knows about Brianna. And Brianna was 200 years old on the day of her birth. Now Galus has taken it upon herself to go back to the future, find Brianna and kill her to ensure that the next king of Scotland will rise. Like, lady. OMG, okay? (laughs) It does pose an interesting conundrum for Claire because Claire is a healer and she would never intentionally do something to harm someone. And I think this is what she struggles with. But at the same time, she's also a mother. And you do not threaten her child. You just don't do it. And I really applauded that moment for Claire. It was a moment that I know on a deep, deep level, she struggled with 
but that she had to do it for the sake of her child. Like, we've seen it before, Claire making these tough decisions for the sake of her baby, her daughter. She left Janie for this baby. So you think that she's going to let Galus go back and hack her to pieces? Like, hell no. She's going to do what she has to do to protect Brianna. And I really did love that moment between Claire and Jamie where she's honest with him. And she says, if the pool pulls me in, like if the portal pulls me through, I may not be able to come back again. And I think that's something that is lost on TV viewers throughout the series. It's something that they don't really put much stock in or spend much time conveying in this show. I think it's a hard medium, honestly, but time travel is not easy. It's not a revolving door. You can't just go back and forth on a whim. It's something that kills a lot of people. And the people that do go through and make it through, it's a very scarring experience for them. Um, Gives them nightmares. It's a terrible ordeal physically and mentally. So Claire, being older at this point, you know, she's 50, I think. So I mean, middle-aged, but still not as young as she once was. She knows, like, in Voyager, when she came back through the stones to be with Jamie, it was pretty much said that whether things ended well with Jamie or not, she wouldn't be going back. Like, she couldn't make it a fourth time through the stones. She just couldn't physically handle it anymore. Like, it could have killed her going through to find Jamie in the first place. So it is a very interesting situation, but I love that they have that conversation because for book readers, we know what that means. If the portal takes me, I may not be able to come back again. We know what she means by that. For show watchers, it might be a little more harmless. Like, it may not really impact them the same way, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But then Jamie looks at her and he says, if anything happens to me, you have to still go after her because we lost faith and we will not lose Brianna. And that that's the understanding that they have before they go into that cave and confront Galus. I love that conversation between them. It shows that as much as they love each other, they love their child more and that they would be willing to risk permanent separation to ensure her safety. I mean, they did it once and they'll do it again for her. It's a really powerful moment, honestly. I do love it that they're standing there and they kiss each other and they stare at each other like deep into each other's eyes for that one moment. And then they take a deep breath and they go to do what they have to do to save Brie. It's really great. Phenomenal. Poor Ian. Like, my God, this kid. (laughs) I know I talked about it last episode, but I just can't get over how much he's been through. Like, I just feel so awful. He almost dies. Like, that must have been a a traumatic experience. And God, he has to be related to Jamie, you know, to just, like, shake it off, take it in stride. I know we see a little bit of his PTSD in the first episode of season four, um, which is legitimate. The things that he went through and saw and experienced, it's just awful. And so I'm glad that they include that. At the same time, yeah, I love that he had every faith that... Jamie would come for him, that he never doubted for a moment he would be on the first ship after him. The bond between Jamie and young Ian is something extremely special. He has a closer bond with Jamie than he has with his own father, and that's something that gets explored a little bit more as the seasons go on, that Jamie was kind of an adoptive father for Ian, and that Ian was very much an adoptive son for Jamie very much like Fergus was for him. So it's a very heartwarming bond for the two of them. And I really do enjoy watching how it plays out on screen, especially I think John Bell and Sam Hewen, they they do a very good job portraying that relationship. So basically, Jamie's concerned about Ian. And I think to an extent, Claire is concerned about Ian as well. But also what's driving Claire the most is her fear for Brie and knowing what Galus is capable of, that this is doubly awful because she's going to try to kill Ian to go back in time to kill Brie. People that she cares about, that she loves, are in danger and it doesn't matter how strong this healer compulsion is for her, she's still going to protect those closest to her. 
I think it's a great arc over the course of the season for her because when we see her feel that calling and go to med school in the very beginning of season three, and then we see how strong that compulsion to heal is in Creme de Menthe when she tries to save the man that attacked her and attempted to rape her. I mean, not a lot of people feel that he becomes a patient at that point. And I think that, it, like I said, in when I was analyzing that episode, it, it confuses a lot of people because most viewers can't identify with that need to heal people and to make them feel better. But then to see her at that point and go all the way through her experience with heaven and earth and to see what she's willing to do to save all of these people, even sacrifice her own happiness and her own needs and wants. She just, at the heart of it all, is very much a doctor. That's one of her defining characteristics. And she says in a later season, I think she says in season five, if she lost everyone that mattered to her, the one thing that she would have left is that she's a doctor, a healer, whatever you want to call it. Like she would never be whole again if she lost Jamie or Brie, but she would still have that left. So to see her basically sacrifice that do no harm oath that she took to kind of set that aside and put it by the wayside to kill someone that she at one time considered to be a very close friend. It was her first friend that she made in the 18th century to kill her to protect her daughter and her nephew that says a lot about Claire's character and really completes the arc that, yes, Claire 100% will always put her healing abilities first. She'll put her best foot forward always. But there are certain lines that even she is not willing to cross. Like, she is not willing to let her child be harmed. So she kills Galus. It's the only thing that she can think of. She tried talking you know, she tried to negotiate and Galus was absolutely like, she's, she's off her rocker. Like I said, there was no reasoning with a crazy person. The logical part of their brain just isn't functioning. So it's really impossible to try to understand them and make them understand what they're doing is not cool, like not okay. You can't just kill some innocent girl for a prophecy that may or may not be true. Because in Galus's head, it is true. And there's no talking her out of it. So Claire ends up having to kill her with a dull blade. And then Claire has the flashback of like one of the ultimate cases of foreshadowing in this series, which was the skeleton that Joe Abernathy was performing the autopsy on in the very beginning of this season, because we find out that it was Galus and that Claire is the person that tried to cut off that woman's head with a dull blade, as it's put. It reminds me a lot of Claire's kind of premonition whenever she first walked into Castle Leoc with Frank in Sassanac. She had that moment of deja vu almost. And I think that she had a similar feeling whenever she was staring at that skeleton with Joe and she picked up the skull. And for some reason, she felt this connectivity to these bones. I've talked about Claire's talents as a diagnostician before, and I think that has a lot to do with her abilities that we learn more about as the series progresses. But also... Just the fact that how this time continuum works, like in the Diana Gabaldon universe, time is linear. But also, there's this moment of deja vu for Claire when she is at a place or does something that she has already done before. So when she walked into the dungeon at Castle Leoc or the surgery, she's like, wait, I've been here before. But she hadn't yet in her timeline, but she had in the grand linear timeline of the universe. Same can be said for this skeleton that she hadn't at the time killed Galus yet in her timeline, but in reality, she had already killed her 200 years prior. It's a total mind warp, but it's also kind of begs the question, like, how much does the human brain know? Like, can it predict the future to an extent? Like, what is that moment of deja vu? And especially in this fictional universe, like, you can tell that she has these moments 
And it's very interesting to kind of look back on it once you have the full story and be like, oh, that's what that was about. So very cool. I appreciated that. Had to take a moment to discuss that whole foreshadowing instance because it was really a very clever design on the part of Diana, first off, and that they included it in the show and managed to somewhat keep it a secret was was pretty cool as well. Like last episode, there's kind of a lot of mythical elements to this episode. I think it boils down a lot to the voodoo section of this episode, as Tony Graffia refers to it, because very much like the instance with Galus's skeleton, there are things from the beginning of the season that are also mentioned in this episode, primarily in from the episode The Battle Joined. If you'll remember when Jamie was lying on Culloden, bleeding out, he saw a rabbit. And then Claire, in a similar separate fashion, sees the bird and she imagines that it's Jamie talking to her. And that's a, that's a moment of comfort. And then to have those moments recalled by Margaret, who doesn't really know these people, Jamie is like really freaked out by it, rightfully so, because he knows immediately what she's talking about. I see you in an orchard of death, sown with blood. I see the rabbit and he immediately, he knows. And likewise, Claire, whenever she tells her, I see a bird on a windowsill, it sings to you when you are sorrowful, but you hear him. I have always kind of wondered what the rabbit represented in this instance, because clearly the bird represents Claire drawing Jamie, like holding him close to her. But the rabbit, I have always kind of drawn symmetry with Brianna, because Brianna loves rabbits, as Claire mentions to Jamie in the doldrums. Whenever she's a baby, she has the stuffed rabbit that she loves that Claire and Frank mention a couple of different times. So I always kind of drew a parallel as the rabbit representing Brie. I'm not 100% sure on that. I haven't read any material on it. I'm sure that someone has asked that question at some point and somewhere on the World Wide Web, there is an answer as to what the rabbit represents in this story. Feel free, if you know the answer to this question, to drop it in the comments for this podcast post because I really would love to know because I do find it very interesting, all of the symbolism in this episode. It's really great. Most importantly, what we get out of this voodoo section is when Margaret channels Brianna. I thought she did a really good job with the American accent, first off, and she really does kind of mimic the tone of Brianna's voice done by Sophie Skelton and well enough that you can kind of see the recognition on Claire's face. She's like, what? Whoa. And Jamie even hears it. You know, he's never met Brie, but whenever she talks to Jamie, he knows, he knows that it's Brie. So I found that moment very interesting. It's a little bit of a call back to what happens in the books, but what happens in the book is a bit more in context it really just felt like it was shoved in here. I think that the episode could have done without it. It's one of those things that I feel like they thought they needed to put in there because it was in the books. But in retrospect, I think that they, it could have done without it. I think that the episode would have been fine and honestly probably would have felt a lot less rushed. So that's one of the things that I was like, I really did like it. And as a book reader, I appreciated them putting it in there. But when I'm viewing it from an outsider's perspective... Just as a show watcher, I think that, honestly, it probably could have been cut and been fine. That they could have used that time for more important pieces of the story, I think. The other part of this section that I really loved, just for the history geek part of me, is the whole ritual with the slaves. It's a bit weird at first because the first time you encounter them is when Claire is on her way to see Galus and they're all marching down the road with their torches and humming. Claire's like, what the hell? Like, it is weird. But whenever you watch the scene where they're dancing and singing, you do feel the similarities to the Druid dance that Claire witnessed with Frank. It's there. Lock, stock, and barrel, it's 100% there, and you can see it. 
And I think that replaying the theme song for the Druid dance also drives that point home. But I love that the show creators took the time to find choreography that calls back to the African heritage of these individuals. You can see the molding of Afro influences that create the culture we have in the Caribbean today, especially in islands like Jamaica and Haiti and places like that. So I find it very interesting that it's the Caribbean is very much a melting pot of all of these different cultures. And unfortunately, a lot of it is due to the slave trade that it even existed is unfortunate, but it is kind of cool that we get these meshes of Spanish culture and African culture, even French culture in a lot of places all pushed together into this new kind of way of living and traditions. It's it's very, very interesting to me. So I did appreciate that the show went to the lengths of kind of touching on that a little bit. It also is, begs the question, okay, so are there standing stones in Africa? <laughs> like these people clearly have these rituals and obviously they're doing it as paying homage to a band away. But it's also extremely interesting that these rituals are being had in much the same way as the Celtic Druids are having in Scotland. This is happening across many different cultures. We see it happen again in season four across a more different culture um, in the Native Americans. So yeah, very eye-opening, very interesting. I do like to see the different, different cultures go at it and like, see how the show adapts for those allowances of time and place and the people, but that this mythology exists across such a large area. Like we're talking, it's spanning continents from Europe to Africa to the Caribbean and then to North America. So it does beg the question. It is touched a little bit on the books, but I really hope that we get more answers, especially in book nine, because Bree and Roger, they do a lot of research on it, but I hope that <laughs> it begs the question, like, did Frank ever research this? Like, what are in those damn books? I need to know. <laughs> so probably not. I know that his research was on the Jacobites, but it is very interesting. I'm all ears. I'm ready to, I'm ready to know, <laughs> ready to learn. Let's talk about my favorite person of this episode. Absolute favorite has to be Lord John. He's so amazing, guys. And David Barry is probably at least half. Like the character Lord John is awesome. But David Barry as Lord John just sets it on a whole other level. And the scene that we refer to in the fandom as the dressing down scene that he has with Lieutenant Leonard makes the episode for me. And I don't know if you guys feel this way. I know it's a popular scene because I've talked to a multitude of people about it, but it is so fantastic. I really wish we had gotten the scene where somebody, Fergus comes in and says, Jamie's in trouble. Like we need your help. John just goes to bat for him. No questions asked. I love their friendship. And the John seriously, like single-handedly maneuvered through a minefield. Like it is one of his greatest talents. And you can really see the years and years and years of military experience that John has in this scene because he is handling Lieutenant Leonard as a junior officer, making him feel belittled and like he has no foot to stand on. John knows exactly what he's doing and doesn't give a flying fuck about it. He's just like, yep, I'm doing this. It starts with him talking about, oh, sorry, not Lieutenant, Captain Leonard. You'll have to forgive me because the army's not so cavalier with their handing out of rank. They only give it out when it's earned. Obviously, this is paraphrasing things because I don't have the script in front of me, but it starts off on that foot. Like he is very much with a smile on his face, pretending to be polite, but on the inside, he's jabbing left and right. And it definitely hits home. Like, Leonard knows what he's saying. And then John proceeds to dismantle Leonard's defense with, like, a flick of his finger here and there. Like, almost takes zero effort. It looks like it's just completely 
without thought. He's just, oh, well, do you have the warrant? And he was like, well, I don't have a warrant, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, well, then I'm assuming that this man that says he knows this gentleman has signed an affidavit and sworn its veracity in front of a magistrate. And he was like, well, only having a, just arrived in Jamaica. And John's like, okay, so if you don't have a warrant and you don't have an affidavit, then what do you have to support your claim? Like, please tell me that you don't plan to take this man's liberty on the scurrilous gossip of the lower deck. <laughs> oh, my God. Leonard knows what happened in Edinburgh and Jamie so clearly like there's a point in there where you see Jamie like want to stand up and defend himself and say something but he catches himself and lets John handle it because John knows how to handle this. I think that that is probably one of the most telling moments of character growth for Jamie because he's not as impulsive and hot-headed as he once was. He knows that In some situations, it's best to let others do the talking. And John is doing a fair job of getting him out of the trouble he's in. So let's just let him give it his best shot. So it was really great. And at the end of it all, when Leonard makes the point, he says, I believe that these charges are true. And under the Articles of War, I am justified in taking him into custody. And John looks at him and it's literally like if looks could kill. And he says, indeed, Captain, but your authority ends at the water's edge, which is precisely where my authority begins. And until I am satisfied as to the validity of this alleged warrant, this man will retain his liberty. (laughs) It is super imposing. Like John is actually a very powerful person and he knows what power he holds. And so that he's dismissed with this, thank you, Lieutenant Leonard. It's just so fantastic. And then as Leonard walks out of the room, John looks at his desk, smirks and looks at Jamie like, yep, I I just did that. (laughs) Like he's so proud of himself and he knew, he knew if he pressed the issue and brought up his authority that Leonard didn't have a thing to stand on. Like, everything would just fall away if he held his ground. And that is 100%. Like, John is a very intelligent man, and I'm not going to discredit that at all. He is very, very smart, and he's very, very capable. But he also, like I said before, spent a lot of time in the military. And I think that that shines through in this conversation, perhaps more than any other character trait, because he knows that he's the top dog in this situation and that if he's not going to bend, Leonard's going to break. It was really great. All in all, I absolutely adored this scene. And I love that Jamie says, well, it appears I am in your debt once again. And John basically says, we've been in each other's debt so much I've lost track. And Jamie says, well, until next time then. Their friendship is probably my favorite friendship of this entire series. It's so great. It just transcends any other problem that men of their time might have with each other. It really is, I'm there for you when you need me, and you're there for me when I need you. It's like no strings attached. It's just an unquestioning thing. Like, I will go to the ends of the earth to do whatever you need me to do. It's one of those friendships, and I really appreciate it. Like, Jamie needs one of those friendships for all the shit that he goes through. So I'm really glad that, like, obviously it's more than friendship for John, but at the same time, if that's all that Jamie can give him, he'll take it. So I love it. I love everything about their relationship. It's one of the many reasons that I love the Scottish Prisoner so much, even though the Scottish Prisoner technically takes place before these events in this episode. But yeah. If you want a little bit more John and Jamie in your life, go and pick up the Lord John books, especially the Scottish Prisoner, because they're great. So we get out of Jamaica and we are setting sail for Scotland. This scene, you guys all know what I'm talking about. This scene between Jamie and Claire is so fantastic. So fan-freaking-tastic. Jamie is the king of foreplay. Like, king of men, okay. But king of foreplay, 
Oh, yeah. Like, he knows how to talk to Claire and just rile her up. And one of my absolute favorite parts of this scene is that he literally loves everything about Claire. There's not one thing that he does not love. Primarily, what we're getting out of this scene is he loves how vocal Claire is. And I think I've talked about it on this podcast before. She is very loud (laughs) during sex. You know when Claire is satisfied, right? And it's not just in the peak moments of the act, right? It's throughout the entire thing. Like she moans and she groans and she squeaks and just does. (laughs) And I love that during this whole scene, she's like, I don't squeak. I don't moan. I don't this, that, or the other. And at the end of it all, he's like, and we'll see what noises you didn't make then, Sassanac. (laughs) It's so cute to see Jamie and Claire, like, They've accomplished their mission. They don't have a care in the world. They're on their way back to Scotland. Things seem to be looking up for once. They're just having a beautiful moment together as husband and wife, enjoying each other's company and the pleasures of the flesh. It is really just so fantastic to have that moment. And probably, honestly, one of the sexiest things in this season. Like, we get a lot of bedroom scenes in this season. I think that it's inherently required when you have a reunion after 20 years to have those sex scenes, but each one of them has such a different flavor. It never feels like we're doing the same thing twice. And I think that's one thing that Sam and Kat, really, it's important to them is that it's never redundant. It's never excessive. It's never gratuitous. This scene, I think, is the genuine example of that. because. It is really just about them enjoying each other. After having been through everything that they've been through, it's earned 100%. So we transition to the hurricane scene. They filmed this entire sequence of stuff when they first got to South Africa, before they filmed any of the other episodes like the doldrums, heaven and earth, any of that with the ships. They filmed the eye of the storm stuff because they knew that there was so much by way of special effects that had to be done with this, that they had to give the special effects studio extra time to work on it. So I felt like all in all, this episode did really well as far as the storm and all of those effects, like especially as they're coming up and you see the hurricane from like a bird's eye view. I thought it was really cool. And what really just tells me that it's a good special effects sequence is that you don't really think about it being a special effects sequence. You're in the moment, they're in a hurricane, and oh, holy crap, Claire just got tossed overboard. That is your focus. You're not thinking about, oh, those waves do not look real. Like, what the hell? That's fake. That ship is totally computer graphics. You know, because there's the back half of your mind that we're so privileged these days to have great special effects in most movies and TV shows that we watch. That whenever we get bad special effects, our eye picks up on it right away. We're like, ew, that looks gross. Like, that's cheap, is what we're programmed to think now. Because computers have come so far. So as Matt Roberts has said multiple times, when people tell me, oh, I didn't realize there was computer graphics in that scene, that's when you know that it's been done really well. And that's the most gratifying. That's the biggest compliment that you can give a special effects sequence that you didn't even notice it was there. I mean, that's not to say that everything in this episode was fantastic as far as special effects, because Galus's dead body was bad. It was really bad. It didn't look like Lada at all. And yeah, that throws me out of that scene every time I watch it. That's really all I can say about it. It was just, it it didn't look good. Um, You can tell that all the special effects effort was put into the storm sequence, basically, is, (laughs) is how I feel about the dead body. Overall, besides the completely frustrating idea that Claire got thrown over and almost died because she didn't listen to Jamie. Like, oh, here we go again. (laughs) Um, Besides that little tidbit, I really felt like the entire sequence was really well done. And probably the most heart-wrenching part of this episode for me is after Jamie pulls Claire out of the water and they find this piece of wreckage. He's just so heartbroken. I think he's pretty sure she's dead at that point. 
that he did everything he could to save her and he just breaks down into sobs as he's floating on the ocean. It really does just crack my heart wide open. It makes me want to cry because after everything that they've been through, that he finally got her back, you know, and this is how it ends. I'm sure this is what's going through his head. And it's my quote of the episode when he says, damn you, Sassanac, if you die here now, I swear I'll kill you for it. (laughs) I mean, to think about that. They spent 20 years apart, all the things that they went through, everything they'd been through since they came back together, and it felt like they were finally going to get some smidgen of happiness, and Claire gets thrown overboard and drowns. Yeah, that's about par for the course. So it was really just awful. I think Sam did a great job. And then to fast forward and they're on the beach and when he's crawling over to her and he just looks at her face and you can see it all over his face. Like he just knows he's sure she's dead. He leans down to give her that one final kiss to say goodbye, basically, is what he's thinking. And she coughs and that look of relief on his face, like, oh man, (laughs) it's so... Oh, guys. (laughs) Anyway, it's incredibly good. It's probably one of my favorite parts of the episode just for all the feels. Like, I get all the feels thinking about it. It really is good. And let me tell you also one thing that I have to just give a standing ovation for is the transition between those two scenes because it zooms up out of the hurricane from the eye of the storm. And it's the swirl of a hurricane. You know how it looks. We've all seen it. And then it fades into the sand swirling in the water and the tide pools on the beach. It's gorgeous. I absolutely love it. It's fantastic. So whoever came up with that idea, hats off to you, sir or ma'am. Honestly, this ending for season three is one of my favorite endings of any season that we've had on Outlander. Because I felt like, honestly, they could have ended the show here. Not that I wanted to see that happen ever because there's so much more content, but it was so well ended. There was just enough jumping off point that you can imagine where their lives went after that. But it was also a very satisfying ending. They're alive. They're happy to be there. They're in the Americas. The world is their oyster. I could have happily had that be the end of the series. And I'm genuinely concerned knowing that season seven is coming up and how that book ends. I'm very worried about that because it's not a good place to end the series at all. And all the actors' contracts are up after season seven. So I'm genuinely worried about it. Um, Try not to think about it because we've got a ways until we get there because season six hasn't even aired yet. But just thinking about season three and how it ends does kind of trigger that part of my brain a little bit. Likewise, I think that season five probably would have been a good ending place with the way they ended it. And probably the next best place that you're going to end things is book eight ends really well. And I think that most book readers will agree with me on that, that if the actors aren't sure they want to come back, like stars just throw all the money at them, say one more season and end it right with the season adapted from written in my own heart's blood, because it is a good book. It has a good ending. It'll satisfy all the viewers and it won't leave people hanging. I think that's the biggest thing. Like you don't want to end on a cliffhanger. That's not the way to go out. I think it would upset a lot of people. So stars, please don't do that. Please, please, please do not do that. But with all of that said, I think that the food for thought that I want to end this episode on is this episode is titled Eye of the Storm. I've probably said it a million times by now. And obviously it ends with a hurricane. So Eye of the Storm is appropriate in the literal sense. But I want to talk about it in the figurative sense because I really do view Jamie and Claire as the Eye of the Storm. They are the calm and the chaos. It's like Jamie said, I think it's in the doldrums. He says, no matter what happens around us, this us never changes. And I think that that is the perfect thing to remember when you're thinking about the metaphorical sense of the eye of the storm, because Jamie and Claire are quite literally the eye of the storm. So... I really like that parallel, and I felt like that was a great place to end my analysis of season three. I didn't have a performance of the episode this week because 
I felt like everybody had their high moments, but there wasn't really any standout performance to me. And I couldn't give an ensemble performance because some people's performances I thought were actually not so good. As always, I opened it up to hear what you guys had to say on this episode because it's a good one and I knew that you guys would have some thoughts. So without further ado, let's get into the listener feedback. Jen Ellerby says, What a powerful episode. The protecting of her child, the realization of Galus being the skull found, and that she was the cause. So incredibly heartbreaking for her. What a great episode. Yes, all of that was so fantastic, wasn't it? Especially, like I said, the skeleton. Like, I'm a huge fan of foreshadowing anyway, so that was like the icing on the cake or the cherry on top for me, Jen. Anne Robillard says, I wasn't so crazy about it when I first watched the last three episodes, having read the books, but I have really had a 180 on it, and the last episode is actually now one of my favorites. Season three is by far one of my favorites. I find the more I watch the shows, the more I get from them. Outlander is so multifaceted, the books and the show, that only watching or reading once is a discredit to it. I totally agree with you, Anne, and I think I've said this multiple times in this podcast um, over the course of our 50 episodes we've done. This show and these books, they're so huge and they're so multifaceted that you almost have to read and watch them more than once to fully appreciate what you're seeing because you're almost guaranteed to miss things on the first and even the second watch or read through. So I agree with you, Anne. Uh, She goes on to say, I really knew very little of Scottish history and the influence of the British to the rest of the world, even though I had heard how the sun never set on the British Empire. Diana's books really gave me a better understanding of that saying. I really liked all the special effects and Jamie's desire for Claire willing to die with her if he could not save her in the storm. It's so cute, isn't it? So romantic. And that's a good way to look at it. Like, I never really thought about that. That, yeah, he just stayed with her on that raft and was quite literally risking his own life, thinking that if she wasn't going to live, neither was he. Wow. I never thought about that. That's cool, Anne. Thanks. And the last comment that I'm going to read is from Regina Geisert. She says, great episode. I absolutely loved the way they did the underwater scene. Claire definitely became Mama Bear in the cave and showed she was willing to do whatever she had to do in order to protect Brianna and the ones she loves. The shock and realization of the skeleton she examined with Joe and immediately jumping to the conclusion that she was murdered only to later be the one who killed her had to have been so difficult and I think they portrayed it very well. Galus, of course, is only after one thing and doesn't care who she hurts or kills in the process. For her, the ends justify the means no matter how horrible. Claire gives her the benefit of the doubt too often and this was her last straw realizing that this person whom she once called a friend was willing to kill her only living child to get what she wanted. I love Jamie's devotion to Claire and how he will follow her to hell and back, even unto death, rather than live without her ever again. They both are like the eye of the storm for each other. They bring peace and calm to each other in a way that nobody else can, and because of that, they're able to weather any storm together. Overall, it was an amazing episode and is in my list of favorite episodes. Wow. It is in your list of favorite episodes. That's cool. Well, I'm glad it makes somebody's list. I think that generally one thing that I have learned so much from you guys about as we determine which episode of every season is the best is how many of you have different episodes that you love the most and what you pick out of those episodes that makes you love those episodes. I find it so interesting that we all love this series so much for what it is, but that at the end of the day, something different resonates with each and every one of us. And that an episode that may not be my favorite or the person next to me's favorite, it really grabs somebody else across the room and touches them in a way. So that's really fascinating to me. I'm glad that you like this episode, Regina. And yes, I'm glad that you noticed the eye of the storm metaphor as well. I really, really loved that symbolism. It's like the quote that Jamie says, you know, whatever challenges they may face, the one thing that doesn't change is us. And it's so, so heartwarming. It makes everyone aspire to find that love story in their lives, that one person that is their calm in the storm. And I think it's one of the most inspirational things about this show in general is Claire and Jamie's love story. 
So yeah, I'm glad that we can end on that heartwarming note. Before we part ways, guys, I want to thank you so much for listening to this. I get so many emails and comments encouraging me and thanking me for doing something that I actually really love to do, which is talk about Outlander. And I just want to take a moment to thank you guys because you're the reason that I keep going. And I will be honest, there have been moments where I'm like, oh, God, I have to record. Like, I live a busy life. I work a full-time job. I have a big family. And so to hear that you guys are really enjoying these podcasts and that you like the interaction as much as I do, especially with COVID going on, I know that a lot of us aren't being the social butterflies that we normally are. So Thank you so much for being present with me every week and um, giving me your feedback, sending me those lovely emails and social media messages. It really does matter a lot to me, and I love hearing from you guys. Over the course of the next five weeks, it's going to be a bit of a break, quote unquote, for me. So next week, there won't be any podcasting. The week after that, I'm doing a Facebook Live with Rebecca. She's coming back to chat season three, like all things. She's going to do season three superlatives with me. And that's going to be a Facebook live on my private group, TSF Obsassinax on Facebook. So if you guys would like to participate in the live event and let us know what your favorite parts of season three were, make sure to search TSF Obsassinax and request permission to join. Make sure you fill out All of the questions, there are three questions. Make sure you answer all of them and agree to follow the rules or your request to join the group will be denied. So yes, that live event will be going on May 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific time. We would love to interact with you guys. It's so fun to have these live events. And then the week after that, I have the week off and then I'm going to be doing another live with another friend. And that's going to be a goodie, guys, because we're going to be talking about what we can look forward to in season six. It is going to be all the spoilers. We're talking about book plots, what happened in season five, and how that's going to lay over into season six. So if you have read the books or you don't mind spoilers at all, feel free to join us in three weeks for that. It's going to be a blast. I'm so excited to talk about it. And with all of that out of the way, I'm going to let you guys go. I hope you enjoyed this analysis of 313, Eye of the Storm, and I will talk to you in two weeks when I'm discussing all my favorite things about season three along with Rebecca. Join us then, and until then, stay safe out there, and I will chat at you later. Bye!